Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I am the Events and Lectures Coordinator here. I'm delighted to welcome you to a very special event tonight, which celebrates our ongoing partnership with Pindrop. Earlier this year, we launched the first RA and Pindrop Short Story Award, which, in the spirit of the summer exhibition, offers a platform for emerging and established writers to showcase their short stories to a public audience. To announce the winner and to narrate the winning story tonight, we have invited the very lovely Stephen Fry, whose titles and activities well exceed the time I have allocated for this introduction. But to many, he can be recognised as a writer, actor, comedian, as well as trustee and friends ambassador here at the Royal Academy of Arts. But before you get to hear from our very special guest, I'm afraid we're going to have to tease you for a little bit longer, as I would like to hand over to Pindrop, the co-founders, Simon Oldfield and Elizabeth Day, who will introduce themselves and the shortlist for tonight's event. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, thanks so much for coming this evening to Pinjop at the Royal Academy. It's um, really wonderful to be here this evening with the incredible Stephen Fry, who's already been introduced. And thank you, Amy, for that great introduction. As Amy said, it's really wonderful to be continuing our collaboration with the Royal Academy, which has started a couple of years ago. Originally started to be looking and introducing literature into the exhibition programme, working to explore the themes within the programme, and then presenting authors reading short stories to audiences like tonight. But this is a little bit different, and we really wanted to do something in the spirit of the summer exhibition, opening up the doors and inviting authors to send in their short stories there was very little criteria apart from you know, a word limit because it's a short story competition. And we had an amazing response. We were overwhelmed by it and, and by the quality. Elizabeth and I went through all of them and we just kept texting each other going, this is great, this is great, this is amazing. And they were all read blind, so we didn't know who we were reading and, and where those stories had come from. But they come from all corners of the globe, we discovered afterwards. They've come from all around the UK, they came from the Middle East, they came from America, Australia, the Caribbean, which I think is just testament to the brilliant thing that the Royal Academy does. It just spreads its sort of tentacles all around the world and everything comes back to here. And I think that's what's great. So the shortlist, Elizabeth's going to talk a little bit about that and also a little bit more about Stephen Fry. Just, I want to say personally thank you for being so amazing generally and also being here tonight to uh, read and announce our award and to just continue this amazing journey that is Pindrop, which, uh, oh sorry, I'm Simon Oldfield. I'm about to introduce my co-founder, Elizabeth Day. So here we are. Thank you, Simon. So lovely to see so many of you here. Since co-founding Pinjot with Simon, I have read a lot of short stories, more short stories than I ever thought I'd read in a natural lifetime. And therefore, I can tell you that we are so excited by this shortlist. It is very, very hard to write a short story, but it's very, very easy to know when you're reading a really, really good one. We had many, many entries. Simon and I, as he pointed out, read them all anonymously. And we were taken on a variety of journeys. Uh, we met a variety of characters from lion tamers to life models. And the shortlist, I feel, really does exemplify the best in short story writing today. The best short story invites us into its world. It engages us from the first sentence. And it ends up hopefully telling us something about ourselves. And all of the shortlisted entries do that. 
The shortlist is actually all female, uh, which is a complete coincidence, but I was very, very pleased to see that happen, especially <laughs> in the light of comments by Sir Tim Hunt, who seems to think women are only fit for bursting into tears and falling in love with. Um, controversial. Um, anyway, without further ado, I'd like to announce the shortlist. Wendy Brandmark for The Other Room, Sarah Evans for Iron and Blood, C. Kaczynski for Kevlar, Bethann Roberts for Miss Featherstone and the Beast, and Miriam Kate Robinson for Call Ladies. I'm going to leave it to um, Stephen to announce the winner, but I'd just like to say that we were unanimous in choosing the winner. It is a story that is tender and poignant. It's a story that deals with big issues, love, war, the loss of innocence, but it does so with a restrained lightness of touch, and that means that its impact continues to linger long after you have read it or had it read to you. Stephen, it's such a delight to have you read this story. We were talking earlier about your recent appearance on Desert Island Discs. It was actually the second time Stephen Fry's been on Desert Island Discs, and I always think that's the mark of a superlative narrator, and I'm going to insist on that as a criteria from now on. Um, so now, without further ado, I'd just like to invite Stephen to take the podium, announce the winner, and then read it to us. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you, thank you, Simon. This is a true pleasure for me. As Amy mentioned, I am a trustee of the Royal Academy, though in fact she said trustee, which makes it sound like a, one of those people they have in prisons to uh, uh, look after people. And I just wanted to say, just to plant in your mind, that there's going to be an announcement in the next week or so uh, about a rather new and exciting venture that uh, the Royal Academy is taking part in, a Kickstarter campaign. I think you'll be very excited by it. It's for a world-renowned artist and um, for you to be a part in it, I think, will be just something thrilling. This is an amazing institution, and for it to be connected with such a brilliant idea as Pindrop, I think, is really wonderful. So here we are in the centre of London, just off Piccadilly Circus, which you may recall Arthur Conan Doyle described as that great cesspool into which every idler and lounger in the empire is irresistibly drained. <laughs> and that was in a short story that... Uh, that rather took off. Uh, it was Sherlock Holmes, of course. And uh, Piccadilly continues to be the centre of the world for many people. But, of course, short stories in the English language are global, universal things. I, I don't know about you, but I've always felt that the short story is, is, in a sense, the greatest test of any writer. To pour so much love and effort into a short story, which could have been poured over a long term into a novel, shows a, a true belief in, in the power of language, I think. To, uh, and the winner, which I'm going to announce now, I think is a, is a supreme example. I loved reading all the stories, and I know it's a cliché to say that uh, everyone should be congratulated who's on the shortlist, but it is true. They all wrote really magnificent, memorable, lingering tales. This one, perhaps you'll agree when I've finished reading it, is very special. It was written by Bethann Roberts, and it's called Miss Featherstone and the Beast, and I'd like to ask Bethann to come up and I'll hand her her scroll. Congratulations. I hope I'll do it justice. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
if Bethan agrees, we'll have a little conversation afterwards and, and talk about the story and, and perhaps invite you to ask questions about it too. But uh, it isn't the title wonderful <laughs> alone. Um, so forgive any, any mistakes, Bethan, if uh, you imagine the whole thing took place in North Wales, my accent won't, I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> just because you called Bethan Roberts doesn't mean it should take place in North Wales. Um, I'm going to make it take place in England, if that's okay. I think that's right. <laughs> I'm about to read a story called Ms. Featherstone and the Beast by Bethan Roberts. If women ruled the world, said his English teacher, there would be no more wars. Her name was Ms. Amber Featherstone. But Miss, said Wayne Collett, they all called her Miss. Even Stevie couldn't bring himself to utter that strange thrumming zzz in mzz. Maggie Thatcher's a woman, miss, and you hate her, miss. As the class erupted into laughter and argument, Ms. Featherstone crossed her pale, naked legs. No other adult in the school had naked legs, apart from the PE teachers, and their calves were shaped like bags of golf balls. Today she wore turquoise shoes and a grey skirt that hugged her thighs. Thatcher's not a real woman, said Miss Featherstone. Sarah Figgs put up her hand and said, She's done a lot for the women's cause, miss. She hates feminists, said Miss Featherstone. Stevie had seen Miss Featherstone's first name on a letter whilst photocopying in the secretary's office, a special privilege reserved only for him as editor of the school newspaper, Amber. Like her, it had seemed too glamorous to be real. He had looked it up in the dictionary, hoping for poetry. On finding the words hard, translucent, fossilised resin, he had closed the dictionary, unsure if he was disappointed or enthralled. Margaret Thatcher is a powerful woman who hates feminists. Discuss, said Miss Featherstone. She smiled delightedly. At him, it seemed. A few weeks earlier, Steve's older brother, Mike, had left for the Falklands. Stevie didn't miss him much. Mike was noisy, always crunching on a bag of monster munch or swigging on a Coke, belching for real or making belching noises with his hand in his armpit. But there was a strange quietness to the house without him. It was a quietness that Stevie's parents did their best to eradicate. Every evening since Mike's departure, Stevie's father would sit in his puffily upholstered armchair and read aloud from newspaper articles about the war. I saw my missile hit the back of the enemy aircraft. It exploded as advertised. His plane was in flames. Above his thick hair, a ceramic screech owl flew across the chimney breast, claws stretched towards the geometric pattern on the carpet. After a few sentences, Stevie's mother would silently remove herself to the kitchen, shut the door and turn on her cassette player. Then she danced. She had a fondness for full-skirted dresses, the like of which Stevie had seen nowhere else in town, and when Stevie watched her dance, they seemed to fill the room with their colour and movement. Sometimes he joined her and had to remember to grimace as she twirled him beneath her outstretched arm. Last night, his father came into the kitchen while Stevie was dancing with his mother. 
A Motown song was playing, and her face was becoming greasy with perspiration. Stevie could smell chip fat and perfume on her collar. His father stood and watched them for a minute before saying, Smoky, that's the stuff. Then he reached for Stevie's mother's arm. Give her to me, he told his son. I'll show you how it's done. And he pulled her into a tight embrace against the plaid of his shirt, which made her close her eyes and prompted Stevie to leave the room. At school, Stevie was always alert to her presence. You never knew when Miss Featherstone might enter a room unannounced. And so, when she pushed the double doors open and stood, chin held high, scanning the rows during his Learning for Life lecture, Stevie wasn't that surprised. Mr. Roth and the rest of the room watched in silence as, without apology, she caught Stevie's eye, waved a folder in his direction, and began ploughing towards him. She slapped the folder, the proofs for that month's school newspaper, on the desk and hissed, not quietly enough, the masterpiece. Stevie's ears burned with shame and pleasure. Mr. Roth said, don't let me interrupt you, Ms. Featherstone. The class sniggered. Ms. Featherstone exited with a jaunty wave in Stevie's direction. Later, she caught Stevie in the dinner hall and said she wouldn't be able to make their scheduled final editorial meeting. He should check with his parents first. But her suggestion, therefore, was for a meeting on Saturday morning at her house. She would pick him up at 10 o'clock. He didn't ask his parents. He told them the night before what was happening. His mother said, isn't she the feminist one? Stevie said he thought she was. That's all right then, she said. Why is that all right? Asked his father from behind his newspaper. Well, you know, they're not generally predatory. <laughs> his father snorted. Not generally pretty, you mean? Oh, I don't know. Some of them are quite attractive. Name one. There was a pause. After a while, his mother ventured, Miriam Stoppard? When he'd stopped laughing, his father re-erected his newspaper and muttered, She'll have him up at Greenham before you know it, waving banners, burning bras. I don't think men are allowed up there, George. My point exactly, June, said the newspaper. Ms. Featherstone drew up outside the house. To Stevie's relief, she stayed where she was and peeped the minnie's horn. Hurrying towards the car, he was aware of his mother monitoring his progress down their narrow pathway. Is that your mum? Ms. Featherstone asked. Every fibre of his being wanted to deny that the woman in the loud, huge skirt, standing in the path with her arms crossed, was his mother. But as he secured his seatbelt, he could smell Ms. Featherstone's hair, deeply soil-like, strangely sweet, and he nodded. She looks nurturing, said Miss Featherstone, driving away. Alone with Miss Featherstone. Alone with Miss Featherstone. He was alone with Amber in a small enclosed space, the suburbs disappearing behind them. He'd imagined many times this kind of journey. He took a breath and tried to remain alert to every detail so he could replay the scene later on in the dark. 
She wrenched the gear stick, wound down the window to let out her cigarette smoke. He watched the grey plume disappear and wished he had his own cigarette. They were on a busy shopping street now, lined by Mr Minnit, Gateway, and several shops with Arabic lettering on the windows. Boxes of red peppers and aubergines spilled onto the pavement. Your brother's gone to the Falklands, hasn't he? Cornwall, blurted Stevie. He's actually gone to Cornwall. She looked puzzled. Well, he's in training, the Navy, Helston. Uh, he wants to go to war, though. I don't understand that, she said. Do you? He thought of what his father had said when Mike made the announcement. Going to war for old iron knickers? Are you insane? But he'd smiled as he said it and held his son's shoulder. Then he'd drawn him in for a bear hug. Stevie had shared a bear hug with his father only once, when, after years of trying, he'd finally learned how to ride a bike. No, said Stevie, I don't understand it at all. Mike had later confessed that joining the Navy seemed a better option than the dole queue or cutting out medical implements at the local factory. Her knee clothed today in a tight pair of pink cotton trousers, brushed the gear stick. Well, let's hope Maggie doesn't bring in conscription, she said with a half smile. Then she took her hand off the steering wheel and placed it on his arm. He couldn't be sure if she meant to leave her fingers there for longer than a beat, but he was sure that she sighed. Miss Featherstone sighed, and Stevie sighed too. Her house was a small, terraced place in the east of the town. It reminded him of Pigeon Street, all red bricks, multicoloured fanlights and small cars lining the curb. Inside, the smell of damp and fried onions greeted him. Hello, she shouted, swinging her bag and jacket onto the banister and peering up the stairs. Perhaps she had a housemate. There was certainly no ring on her wedding finger. He had checked many times. Stevie stared as a large man in a fluffy dressing gown descended the stairs. Not dressed yet, Miss Featherstone asked the man. The man yawned in response. She tutted. Stevie, this is Barney. Barney, Stevie. Barney? As in rubble? The man raised his chin in greeting. It was as rectangular and definite as a brick. Then he stepped in front of Stevie and ruffled Miss Featherstone's hair. Making coffee, he asked. She smoothed her blonde bob back into place but made no other protest. Instead, she went through to the kitchen and filled the kettle. Barney slowly climbed back upstairs, the muscles in his calves jostling for space as he walked, leaving Stevie gawping after him in the hallway. After handing him a mug of coffee, she said with a roll of her eyes, Better take one to the beast, and she disappeared. Stevie took the opportunity to look around the living room. A high shelf ran from one end of the room to the other, lined with orange-spined paperbacks. Through the low-window hyacinths splayed their greenness onto the path. On the fireplace were a couple of burnt-down candles and a framed black-and-white photograph of a couple on their wedding day. Mum and Dad said Miss Featherstone, returning and standing close behind him. Happiest day of their lives. Or at least I hope it was, since they spent the rest of them fighting. He took a swig of burning coffee. 
That's usual, though, isn't it? Is there a usual? There is in my house, said Stevie. He was aware this sounded more dramatic than it actually was. The truth was that his mother and father got along fairly well, despite regular rows. What Stevie had really started to hate were their habitual intimacies. The way his father would often stroke his mother's forearm whilst he spoke, as if, Stevie thought, to silence her. The way his mother would brush his father's hair before he left the house and tut admiringly at the density of it. But Miss Featherstone didn't seem to have heard. She was looking towards the doorway, where Barney was now standing, wearing a pair of jogging bottoms and a sweatshirt emblazoned with the words Corpus Christi. I'm off then. He raised a hand in salute. Where are you going? she asked. Tennis, he said, bringing his racket out from behind his back as if displaying the proof. With Adam? He nodded. I, I thought Adam couldn't play this morning. He changed his mind, said Barney, gazing at the ceiling. He, he called, did he? asked Ms. Featherstone. Barney turned on his heel. Yep, see you later, news hounds. Stevie thought Ms. Featherstone might follow Barney. He had never seen her look as beautiful as she did now. Biting her bottom lip, her cheeks flushed, she seemed to him to tremble like a wronged heroine in a Thomas Hardy novel. She made an almost imperceptible movement towards the door, then stopped herself. After a moment, she said, Tennis, with the sort of contempt she usually reserved for the word Tories. <laughs> Shall we look at the proofs, he asked, hoping she would see the softness in his eyes. Their front page headline was, Call for real tracing paper goes to council. There was a photograph of Sarah Figgs handing a petition to Councillor Jennings. Ms Featherstone had encouraged them to protest about the school's dwindling tracing paper supplies. They were often sent from maths to fetch toilet paper as a substitute, calling it the thin end of the funding wedge. Other stories included a vox pop on the relevance of P.E. during this time of political unrest and an investigation into the hypocrisy of the school's anti-smoking policy. Stevie knew from previous editions of the paper that it was supposed to be a light-hearted and positive publication, but Ms. Featherstone had encouraged him to produce something more challenging for his first issue as editor. Now, though, she looked at the pages they'd spread on the floor and seemed unable to recognise any of them. Looks great, doesn't it? Stevie ventured, unsure of what exactly he should be doing in an editorial meeting. She sat back on her heels. You've done a good job, Stevie. You should be proud. He smiled. She might utter the word masterpiece again. His ears began to warm at the thought. Instead, she looked at her watch. Uh, why don't you have a last read-through? I've got to make a couple of calls. Then we can sign off. Is there anything I should be looking for in particular? He asked. But she was already heading for the door, a hand in her hair. While she was gone, he strained to hear her conversation. But all he could make out were the words, bloody typical of him. The first Stevie knew of the trouble was when Mr. Roth approached him in the overheated craft block, a copy of the newspaper held aloft. And I quote, he said, 
rattling the paper. This school's anti-smoking policy is yet another example of the hypocrisy with which the place is riddled. The teachers stink of nicotine. Why shouldn't we sneak the occasional fag behind the bike sheds? <laughs> For a moment, Stevie smirked. Then Mr. Roth said, Mr. Perlman wants to see you now. Stevie had never before been summoned to the deputy head's office, and he found himself rather excited by the prospect of a showdown with Norman Perlman. Perlman was famous for spitting. As he talked, he left foamy globs on his jumper. The problem seemed to be that his lips were too large for his beard. In his office, which was the size of a cupboard and stacked high with copies of Deutsche Heute, they sat at opposite sides of the table, Stevie's heart thudding as Perlman stroked his knitted tie. Between them, the newspaper lay open. Finally, Perlman said in a sad tone, this is your first issue as editor, isn't it, Stevie? Stevie nodded. That's a shame, because if there was going to be a next time, which there won't, of course, you'd know better. Perlman wiped his spittle-spotted jumper. Good journalism means sticking to the facts. No one wants your opinions, he sighed. It's her I blame, Featherstone. I'm presuming it was all her idea. Not really, sir. But the tone of it, Stevie, that's her, isn't it? It's her all over. We wanted it to be challenging, sir, and entertaining. He remembered her words, more quality supplement than local rag. A bell rang. Look, said Perlman, if you like, just tell me that she put you up to it. Then we'll forget it, okay? You'll be off the paper, but there'll be no other punishment. He leant forwards and spat purposefully. We all know what she's like. Show her a line and she'll step over it. But she didn't write any of it, sir. Perlman laughed softly. <laughs> These women, they get a bit of power and they go hysterical. Miss Featherstone had nothing to do with it, Stevie flushed. He remembered her Thomas Hardy heroine look on Saturday and felt they had something in common now. They'd both been wronged, and he was going to make a stand. Have it your own way, said Perlman, and you can have two weeks' detention too, now get lost. In bed that night, Stevie thought about how he'd tell Miss Featherstone what he'd done. I did it for you he'd say, and she would put her fingers on his arm, give that sigh of hers, and say, you shouldn't have. Would they kiss? He wasn't sure. This was, he knew, the next logical step in his fantasy, <laughs> and it was a scenario he tried often to imagine, especially under the covers after 11 o'clock at night. But it seemed slightly jarring, disappointing even. It, it, it wasn't the kiss that he wanted the most, although he did want it. It was something less defined and harder to imagine. On the edge of sleep, a word came to him. Admiration. He thought that maybe he wanted Miss Featherstone's admiration. The following day, she wasn't at school. She wasn't there the next day either. Instead, Norman Perlman appeared in Stevie's English lesson and told them that Owing to personal circumstances, Miss Featherstone would not be back that term. 
After school, Stevie took the bus to where she lived and loitered outside her house, gathering the courage to walk to her door. He was careful not to lean against her car, even though he wanted to touch the door handle, the petrol cap, the bonnet, any place her fingers had been. A cool wind blew up the street, making the hyacinths that grew up her front path shiver. As he rang the bell, he had some phrase in his head, something like, now or never, or do or die, some phrase with or in the middle that his father or Mike might use. That afternoon, during double physics, he'd written out what he was going to say. I know what they've done to you, what they do to all powerful women, and we have to fight back. But now the only thing in his head was this idea of a phrase with or in the middle. She opened the door a crack leaving the safety chain on, and peered at him. Oh, she said, it's you. Can I talk to you? I can't really talk right now, Stevie, I'm sorry. But there's something I need to tell you. Yes? He could see only an eye and a slither of her pale neck. Instead of reciting what he'd written, he blurted, I didn't say anything about the newspaper. What? She sounded very tired. In case you think it was me who got you sacked. He took a breath, remembered some of his script. It's the system, isn't it? The system that can't deal with powerful women. But I stood up for you, miss. She shut the door. He heard the click and slide of the chain coming off. And when she opened it again, he gasped. Her right eye was half hidden by purple, swollen flesh, through which ran a deep cut held together by black slashes of stitch. He shuddered and sucked the air audibly through his teeth. <clears throat> then he looked away, uncomfortably aware that he was grimacing at the sight of her. She sighed, and it was a very different sound to the one she'd made when she'd placed a hand on his arm. You'd better come in. She led him through to the sitting room and sat facing away from the window. With the light behind her, her black eye was no longer so pronounced. Stevie breathed out, relieved to be spared a little of its glaring drama. Well, she said, now you know. He wanted to ask her, what the hell happened? Was it Barney? But he found himself unable to speak. He hoped she would fill the silence, but she just sat there staring at him as if, he thought, in accusation. In his panic, he thought he might cry and had to put a hand to his mouth to steady himself. Oh, for Christ's sake, she said. Beneath the bruise, the rest of her face was grey and her voice sounded grey too. Don't get upset. I can't handle you getting upset. This has nothing to do with you. It was as if she, Ms. Amber Featherstone, had disappeared and been replaced by this hideous bruise. Sorry, he said, gulping back the tears. To avoid looking at her face, he glanced round the room and saw Barney's tennis racket balanced against the windowsill. Was he actually here, still in the house? If he wasn't, then he could be back at any moment. Stevie's heart flapped in his chest. She must have seen him looking at the racket because she said, I keep meaning to burn that bloody thing. So it was... I mean, is he... I mean, where? Oh, she said, don't worry, he's gone. She reached for a cigarette and lit up with a shaking hand. Right, 
good. I mean, she exhaled a long stream of smoke. Stevie, why did you come? He wondered if the beating had given her amnesia. What about his masterpiece? Was all that forgotten too? Well, he began, wiping his sweaty palms on his jeans. Like I said, I wanted to check, you know, about them sacking you, and I wanted to help. They haven't sacked me, Stevie. I've taken leave due to... She flicked ash on the carpet. A domestic situation. I think that's what this is. She jammed her cigarette towards her mangled eye. It's nothing to do with you. Stevie winced. He knew he should want to comfort and hold her. And for a moment he thought of touching her arm the way she had his and sighing in that sympathetic manner. But he stayed where he was, paralysed on her sofa, his eyes constantly flicking towards the taut strings of Barney's tennis racket. Look, could you just go, she said. I'm not really... I can't have this conversation with a pupil just now. He took that in for a second, that word, pupil. Then he rose and bolted for the door, hating himself for the great relief that welled in his chest as he realised that what she'd said was true. This was nothing to do with him. Out in the street, he was filled with violent thoughts. He pictured himself surprising Barney from behind, plunging a large knife straight through the fluff of his dressing gown and puncturing his lung. He imagined kicking Barney into the mud with an army-issue boot, raising a rifle and waiting whilst the beast begged for mercy before shooting him between the eyes. That evening, Mike called home from Helston. The training was going well, he said, but it would be a while before he'd be ready to go into combat. Probably the war would be over before he got to the Falklands. He sounded disappointed. From behind his newspaper, Stevie's father read out the latest news. The Belgrano, which survived the Pearl Harbor attack when it belonged to the US Navy, had been asking for trouble all day. Stevie and his mother left the room. When they were alone in the kitchen together, she told Stevie that Mike's call reminded her of one he had made years ago, whilst on his first school holiday on the Isle of Wight. It was so long awaited, that call, and yet when it happened, neither of them knew what to say. So they'd talked about the food and the weather, and afterwards she'd cried because she'd forgotten to tell her son that she missed him. Stevie listened and nodded, then he handed her a tissue. Don't go, don't you go away. Will you, she said. Don't go and fight any stupid wars. I know it's what men do, but you're different, aren't you? She traced the outline of his face with a fingertip and looked at him for a long time, and he nodded. Then she flicked the switch on the cassette player, and a song came into the room. She recognised, he recognised, the voice as Smokey Robinson's. She had to pull him to his feet, but once Stevie was in his mother's arms and could smell the familiar scent of chip fat and perfume on her collar, he rested his head on her warm shoulder and held her as tightly as he could. His father came in. The girls love a man with a woman's voice, he said. Don't they, June? But Stevie's mother said nothing, and Stevie didn't let go. Instead, he clung to her, letting her dance him around the room, her skirt whirling and whirling like a crazed bird.
is all about the intimacy and the enjoyment of being read aloud to. And when such a superlative narrator as Stephen Fry is combined with such a beautiful writer as Beth Ann Roberts, I think we can all agree that's the best that you can possibly get. Um, um, and now we're going to invite Stephen back on stage with Beth Ann um, to have a short conversation and a Q&A. So if you have any questions that have been burning a hole in your mind, please do ask them. Thank you. Well, Beth, and firstly, can I just say, if, uh, if there were stories like this being written all the time, I wouldn't have another job. I would just be happy reading and doing audiobooks for stories like that because it's quite enthralling to be inside a story of that nature. And I suppose all good stories strike me as being almost like ball bearings. You can't imagine how they're made. They seem so perfect from every angle. You can't, can't picture how they were started. I wonder if you could just give us a, a sense of the genesis of it. Was it a, a flavour in the period you wanted to evoke or was it a real story that you had straight away? Um, it was both. I started wanting to write about that period because Thatcher died, and I thought, this is, you know, quite interesting. It just made me remember a lot of things from my childhood. And um, that first line uh, where the teacher says, you know, if women ruled the world, there wouldn't be any wars, that my teacher did say that, <laughs> uh, although he was a man. And um, so I just kind of took that as a starting point, really, and, and it, it went from there. And I suppose, I mean, the, the crux of it, which is so hard and so difficult, and it's seen through the eyes of a, um, an adolescent boy, is the, the, the terrifying disconnect between the abstract political and social gender politics of an intelligent woman and the reality of, of living in a, with violence. Mm. It, it's not hypocrisy. It's mm. just a terrible disconnect, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I wanted to explore that, you know, what Miss Featherstone's public persona was at school. Because, you know, we did have teachers like that at our yeah. school who were kind of very seductive in, in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, and think about what her, her real life, if you like, might have been like. And I suppose I was trying to link, you know, the war and violence and so on. So that's where that, that came from. Easy to interpret in one way as a rather... I wouldn't say hopeless story, but it, mm. I mean, it's obviously sad, but it's, it doesn't offer a great sort of obvious trumpet blast at the end. It doesn't suddenly burst into the major key. It is, mm. It's touching that he's left with his mother, but it's almost mm. suggesting that Stevie has, you know, his better off in safe family uh, nest of, a, of an old-fashioned mother than, <laughs> than, than playing with the fire of, a, of this sort yeah. of relationship. Yeah, I suppose I hope that maybe he'd learnt something, you know, and that he would take that with him. And that he was, you know, just finding out about women, really, and the world, you know, beyond his house. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't really do happy endings. <laughs> I find that really hard. <laughs> Nor does life very no, often, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that uh, one thinks of that great line of Miss Prism's in The Importance of Being Earnest when asked about the nature of her three-volume novel. And she said, uh, the good ended happily, the bad ended unhappily. That is what fiction means. <laughs> uh, yeah. but, um, you seem to fulfil, um, not in a formulaic way, but, but, but what, one of the great demands, I suppose, of the form, which is that you, you paint with absolute assurance the characters, e even the smallish characters, Mr Perlman, for example, um, and, you know, the lovely little touches. It's not just 
the gobs on his tie, it's his knitted tie, mm -hmm. that just says something. You know, all these little things, the hyacinths, the, you know, uh, all these little details. Um, do, do you take, do they come naturally or do you sort of add them in? Do you, like a painter, you stand back from the story and think, oh, I need a bit more detail here? Yeah. I mean, often the stories come from the details, actually. You know, mm. I find it's like you kind of start with the knitted tie, almost. And yeah. in a way, that's what, you know, fiction is, for me, is those globs of spit on somebody's jumper. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of where it begins, and that's kind of what I'm very interested in. And I find that stories come from that. That's but, interesting, yeah. But, you know, it's... It, but, yeah, I mean, sure, there is a lot. There's a lot of going over and going over and going over and refining, you know, and thinking maybe touch more here, touch more there sort of thing. Do you write... Uh, in do you concentrate entirely on a short story until, until it's finished? Or do you, do you put it aside, write something else, and then come back to that one, see what it needs? Yeah, I mean, I'll concentrate on it, you know, for a while until I don't know what to do with it anymore, and then I might put it away. This one I did actually put away for quite a long time and then got out again... I think maybe twice I did that. So it's kind of been, it's been floating around for a few years. It's funny that um, we're here in the Royal Academy because um, short stories more than novels, I think, do, do remind me of paintings, of, you know, the fact mm. that you can stand back and look at a short story perhaps mm. more than you ever could a novel, which is just too complex. And also what you say about how it starts, I think it was Paul Clay who said when asked how he came up with a, an idea or a, a, a thought for a picture and he said, I take a line for a walk, mm. which is a rather good phrase, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Do, yeah, do yeah, you lovely. relate to that? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it, you know, it really, it really did start with, with that first line, you know, and, that's, and yeah. then I kind of just drilled down, I suppose, and all sorts of things come to the fore then. And is it important that you don't describe the character's appearance? We don't know what Stevie looks like at all. Mm, mm. Don't know if he's tall, short, spotty, blonde, dark-haired. Don't even know what his age is, precisely. We assume he's yeah. sort of sixth-form age because yeah. he's editing a magazine. Yeah, yeah, he's about 15. But I'd, yeah. I'd, 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 I'm not against describing character's appearance. I know no. that, you know, some modern writers just never give you anything, no. which I find a little bit frustrating sometimes. But Well, Jane Austen, I mean, people read Pride and Prejudice and they'll swear to you that Darcy is dark-haired, mm -hmm. but she never, ever describes him as mm -hmm. such. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I think it's quite nice to leave a lot of things open because then you can imagine it. And I suppose in a short story, there's, there's so little room for what you want to get in. <gasps> you know, things like maybe, you know, if somebody had dark hair or not is maybe not so important yeah. um, in the end. So you end up, you know, cutting a lot of that stuff out. Do you have... Um uh, you, who are your, I mean, I don't want to top five exactly, but who, who would you say were the writers who've most inspired you? Um, oh, that's really hard to say, but mm. I mean, in terms of short stories, um, I absolutely adore um, a contemporary writer called Claire Keegan, who's an Irish yeah. writer, and every single sentence of hers, I think, is just so beautiful, and I read it and I think, oh, I wish I'd written that, sentence. you know, every single one. <laughs> so, yeah, I love her, and I really like Kevin Barry as well, mm. who's very funny. And, you know, when I was at school, I read Dubliners, and that was, you know, yeah. a real kind of moment for me when I realised how powerful short stories can be and how yeah. they can just encompass a whole world, you know, yeah. in a few pages. Um, yeah, I won't go on. But. No, do. It's fascinating, because uh, we were talking earlier, all, all of us in the other um, um, shortlist of writers, about uh, the nature of the short story, and we were agreeing, I think, that the enemy of the short story in our culture is the publisher. Yeah. Just where their eyes will roll and they'll go, nope. Doesn't I mean, they sell. will say, not that they are personally mm, enemies mm, of it, but mm. you know, the market is the enemy of it, isn't it? Why, yeah. why do you think that is? I'm not sure. Because I'm sure everyone, 
agree listening to that story. They, if they'd read that, you know, mm. a, a book of stories like that, they would happily take to bed, wouldn't they? I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, it's... I think in a way, as a story demands more of you than a novel because you have to really focus, you know, for a little yeah. while on one thing yeah. and you don't get that pleasure of just dipping in and out, you know, right. it's not like the box set. Is you it, don't fold you the corner of the page, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really work like that. No. And, you know, I think there's something really pleasurable about being able to come back to something, you know, put it down. You know, and with a short story, you really have to give yourself to yeah. the story, really. And, you know, it's the same when you're writing it yeah. as well, I think. So I suppose, you know, they are, in a way, although they seem bite-sized and, you know, perfect for our bite-sized culture and all that business, they're actually a bit more demanding, yeah, and you, I mean, you've been published, haven't you? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, as, uh, as Simon and Elizabeth uh, said, and it's, it's true, of course, they read your story not knowing who you were or whether mm. or not you were published, and that's true of all the others. Mm. Um, um, but obviously, you, uh, you shone, shone through. Uh, but how, when did you first, what is actually your, your story as a writer, if you can tell us? Um, well, I mean, I'd, I'd, I did um, a creative writing MA, um, about 12 years ago. Um, I'd always wanted to be a writer, you know, I'd always written. Um, but I didn't really have the confidence to take it very seriously because I don't come from a bookish family. Yeah. And, you know, saying you want to be a writer is a bit like saying you want to be an astronaut or something yes. like that. You know, you just get laughed out of the room. So it took me quite a lot. It took me until I was about 30, really, to take it very seriously. And then um, after I did the MA, I got my first novel published by Serpent's Tale. It's called The Pools. Oh. And since then, I've published four novels in total, yeah. One's just come out about and, a year ago. Oh, well, congratulations. Thank you. A lot of people here, I know, will be going, rushing to uh, the bookshop or, hope so. or the um, Amazon. <laughs> not Amazon. Uh, oh, no, no, of course, not Amazon. <laughs> no. Um, do you flip between the short story and the novel, then? Do you, do you have yeah. kind of mood comes on you that you've got a novel in you? Or? Yeah, I mean, you usually know if it's a short story or, or a novel, you know, it just mm. kind of... I don't know, the shape of it somehow is, is different. I mean, I suppose the novel is kind of my, my first love, but I also, you know, adore short stories, although I find them much, much harder in a way, I think, than novels. Yeah. How, um, how important, therefore, are things like pin drop? Well, there's nothing like pin drop, but there are, of course, short story competitions and so on. Uh, uh, do you, are they important for you? Do you look out really for important, Really yeah. important, because it's very hard to get stories published, you know, or seen yeah. anywhere. So, you know, competitions are, are one of the outlets, you know, where you might actually get a story read. Yeah. And, of course, you know, all writers write to be read. So <laughs> that's, that's the kind of ultimate goal, really. And that's a question a lot of people ask writers, is do you have, do you have an audience in your mind? Do you, is, there a, is it a single um, woman striding the fells of, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> or is it uh, someone in a, uh, you know, in a supermarket uh, harassed with children? Do, do you have a, uh, an audience, no, a target? You no, don't. Not at all. I mean, I just write for myself, really. Yeah. You know, I write what I would like to read, that's that, and that's all I can do. I can't really imagine who's out there reading it. <laughs> you know, it's a, that would be a kind of, yeah, it would be a very difficult thing to do, and I think it would be very distracting, actually. And, and you, you live, I believe, in Brighton. Yep. Mm -hmm. did, did, did you set the, the book in your, the story in your head in, in, in Brighton or not particularly? No, I set it in my hometown, which is, at, which is Abingdon near Oxford. Oh, indeed, yes. Yeah. So it's a kind of, you know, small town stories. I'm always writing small town stories because I'm from a small town. So they're the best, though, aren't they? Mm -hmm. I mean, Men and Beverly, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, I, I thought we might um, ask if anyone wanted to put a question to, to Bethan here. Yeah. Gentleman at the back there. 
Hi, I just wondered, where, did, did you ever write the story from the perspective of a different character? The, all the characters seem very three-dimensional, and I just wondered whether you'd ever tried it with a different character as the, as the main voice. Um, no. <laughs> no, I didn't. It was always from Stevie's point of view, and he was always a boy for some reason. I don't really know why. I quite like writing as a boy. I think it's quite exciting. You know, it's one of the things that fiction allows you to do is to become someone else. And, you know, that's great freedom and, 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 and really exciting. So, yeah, it was, always, it was always from his point of view. I suppose a follow-up would be, because it's an interesting question as to what difference it would make to the story, if it had been first person, if it hadn't been mm. Stevie saw this, but I saw that. Yeah. Uh, had you considered that? Um, I can't remember if I ever mm. tried it in the first person. I probably did, because I usually do, and, right. and see, you know, what the difference is. But I, I think I, I quite like the slight, the slight archness you get with the third person, yeah. because I like, I like a bit of humour sometimes. You certainly <laughs> and, do. You know, <laughs> and, you know, I tried to get that in this, because, it, you know, I mean, I just remembered it as quite a funny time. It's well, School days are funny, aren't they, in some yeah. ways, and awful. I love you know, the and, But, yeah. <laughs> The idea of people thrashing around in their mind to think of an attractive feminist and coming up with Miriam Stoppard. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that Miriam wasn't, isn't a very beautiful woman, but it's just such a, it locates it so precisely. Yeah. It's very really wonderful. Um, anybody else got a, any questions? Maybe one of the other authors, because um, they're really, um, uh, you know, it's difficult for you. I feel sorry because you didn't win, but you're on, you're on the short list, and you, you might have just technical questions that, are, that would be beyond our our competence to ask. Don't feel you have to, but if you, if you had something. There's a gentleman, meanwhile, behind you who might uh, say something you can think. <laughs> um, there's some absolutely just beautiful details in there, obviously, about being a school kid and you know, just the moment where you learn the teacher's first name. Um, you know, it's easily forgettable now, but like, I can remember the thrill of, like, ooh, that's their first name. Um, but it feels like a sort of a strange lesson almost at the end because um, Stevie feels like he's almost emasculated because he can't do anything, because he's a kid. And yet this is a story which is riven through with a sort of a feminist uh, plotline. Um, how did you reconcile that? Um, or I've got absolutely that? no idea. Perhaps you can, uh, you can help me. I don't know. I mean, I, don't, I never think of, you know, what my stories are saying in that way. Do you know what I mean? I just, I just think of the characters and, and how they respond, and I try to... I try to get into the emotion of, of, of the moment, you know, and, and, and the ending of the story is, is really, I suppose, I was just trying to reach for that moment of, of mother and son together and somehow having a kind of, you know, um, you know, something that would give Stevie comfort and maybe a way forward. But I'd, I'd, I don't know, you know, I don't think in, those way, in that way, really, when I'm writing it. Somebody else could read it and tell you, probably. Is it... Is it a, a lot of symbolism, which I'm also guessing is not, you know, self-consciously crafted, but that obviously once you realise it, you shape perfectly. I'm thinking, of example, of the, of the tennis racket, which symbolises Barney, and not just as, you know, as the manly sport, the betrayal by the pretense that he was going off to play, which we assume he wasn't, um, and also the brilliant description of the tightly strung racket, mm. because... <laughs> the guy is, was a man with some mm -hmm. tightly strung issues and she wanted to burn it. And it j just, mm -hmm. Were you aware of that or did it just come as a natural sort of flow? Um, I, do, I, didn't, I didn't really do that very deliberately, you know. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I suppose you just, you just reach for things that will tell you about 
your characters, you know, as well as your readers. Yeah. Because for me, characters kind of, um, you know, they, they form as I write them, yeah. and I find out about them as I write them. So, you know, the, the, ob the objects do tell you as a writer, you know, which, which way they're going and what they're like. Yeah, um, like the cigarette that she yeah. points at the eye and then just drops on the carpet, tells mm -hmm. you everything you need to know about how she's lost any sense. Yeah, it's, it, it's kind of, you know, it's, um, it's a sort of organic way round. You know, it's not like I think, oh, Barney is tightly strung, therefore a tennis racket. <laughs> no, no, do you know exactly. what I mean? Yeah, yeah I yeah. mean, I hope, I hope I don't do that. I don't think I do that. No. But, yeah, so it just, it just sort of happens, really. Fantastic. Did you come up with a question? You don't have to. Oh, there's one there. Hello. Oh, sorry. Hello. Um, um, I, I love that. Um, when you wrote it, did you ever imagine that it would be read out loud? And um, if you did, do you imagine, did you imagine it would be your voice? And did you ever imagine it would be Stephen Fry's? <laughs> I imagined Stephen right from the start. Yeah. <laughs> No, no is the answer, of course not. No, I just, I, I wrote it and, you know, I took it to my workshop group. I have a great writer's workshop group who helped me. And, you know, I didn't really think anything would, would come of it, to be honest. Do you think it's different um, that it is read aloud? And do you think that it becomes a different form or it takes it to a different place? I think, I think there are some stories that work better read aloud than, than others, you know, and um, uh, I had a little bit of hope when I entered the competition because I had actually read some of the story aloud at a little Brighton literary event, you know, it's nowhere near as glamorous as this one. And I, I read kind of the first half myself and I quite enjoyed reading it. And I thought, oh, actually, that... And, and the audience seemed to listen and to appreciate. And so I thought, oh, actually, you know, that, that does sound all right, read aloud. So, you know, that did give me a little glimmer when I, when I realised that the stories were kind of being chosen with that quality in mind. Does that mean you would write again um, from the perspective of it being read aloud? And would you write in a different way? Um, well, I mean, I didn't read it with that... I didn't write it with that perspective i think it's just you know some stories you tell them you tell them in, in, in whatever way the story demands to be told you know and this story seemed to demand to be told in in that way i don't really know how else to explain it but having I, I don't think i could think yeah i'll write another one to read aloud it wouldn't work no but having having heard it read aloud would yeah. you write something else for stephen fry well, of read? course yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll let you know it's a secret. It's not the first time I've read a story uh, featuring a schoolboy as hero. I read one called um, Harry Potter and the uh, Philosophers. Um, and uh, that, that went pretty well. Um, but as they, I started, she'd written one book and um, then she started to write others. I meant a bit of a fool myself, I remember after. Halfway through reading the first one and we were having lunch. And I said to her, I said, this is really good. I think it's going to do awfully well, you know. She said, oh, thank you. I've just, I've just written a second one that's good. I'm going to do a sort of sequence of them. I said, good for you. <laughs> um, but slightly. But uh, she got her revenge because in, in the third one, she used a phrase, a very straightforward phrase, you'd think. I'm not going to be able to say it now. Harry pocketed did it. See, I put an extra syllable in. Harry pocketed did it. Harry pocketed it. Harry pocketed did it. Harry pocketed it. I just can't say anything. I, it's got some strange thing goes on. And, and I, I called her up after I'd tried for about half an hour, literally. I'd just go, Harry pocketed did it. Oh, Harry pocketed did it. And then I go, Harry pocketed it. Harry pocketed it. But that's, you can't say that. So 
Um, this went on and on, and I called her up and I said, um, look, this was on the I'd say, third book, I think it was, The Prisoner of Azkaban, it was called. I said, can I say, Harry put it in his pocket? <laughs> and she said, no. <laughs> and then would you believe it, in the next book, she used the phrase twice. <laughs> Very odd, sorry. So that's just, just, be, that's just mean, isn't it? If you mean. do write a short story, be, think yeah. of the poor reader okay. when it comes to tongue twisters. Yeah. No pocketeds. <laughs> but it's interesting, she said, I mean, this is a very small example, but um, uh, it made a great difference having them read out because a lot of children read the first one and they'd never seen the, word, the name Hermione. Mm. So they just saw as a child, word when you see it, Hermione. Mm. They just saw Hermione, Hermione. And then they heard the thing and heard Hermione and then they sort of changed. <laughs> so, I, could, I mean, we've all had, I'm sure, similar experiences with misled for misled and things like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> enveloped, I used to think. Enveloped, enveloped. yes. Yeah, mm. enveloped. <laughs> so anybody else got any um, thing? That, oh, yes, there we are. Um, no, it's just a question about structure because that story has such an immaculate structure and the way that you flow in and out of backstory is, is so seamless and such a hard thing, I think, for a lot of writers to master. Um, and I'm just wondering how you approach that when you're writing. Do you have a structure in mind and kind of follow it? Um, or is that something that comes with the editing process? Yeah, it definitely comes with the editing. I find structure really hard, really hard. And, you know, I just tend to just try not to take any notice of it for as long as possible. And then towards the end, when I realise I need to, um, then, I, then I do. And then I try and work it all out. But usually it's kind of one of the last things that I do. And, I, you know, I hardly ever start with a structure in mind. Yeah, I know. It's like you at school, you're always told to plan an essay. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nonsense. <laughs> Any other thoughts? You said you've um, been published, and I just want to know how you started that process, because obviously as a new writer who would love to have something out there, I just don't know how you start. So. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I, was, I was very lucky. When I finished, well, just about to finish my MA, I won a Jerwood Arvon Young Writers Apprenticeship, which is a very long title, for um, a, a, a great scheme. And I think Joe would still run mentorship schemes. You can apply. And they, and what, they, what it basically meant was that I had the novelist Andrew Cowan, who's a brilliant, brilliant writer, not read nearly enough. Um, and he uh, helped me for six months with my novel. So he was my mentor and we would, you know, I would send him stuff and he would send it back. And so I think that really... Um, speeded up the process of me being able to finish a novel and get to the end of a novel. Um, and then I, I sent it off and got an agent. I got an agent quite quickly, but um, it took me about a year and a half to get a publisher. And the agent sent it to every single person. And in the end, <laughs> one said, the last one said yes. Um, so, you know, it was um, it was a kind of Fairly long road, and but I, w I was lucky with the Jerwood thing. That's definitely worth applying for. Yes, can we take one more? Anybody? Hi there. Um, do you draw inspiration from your uh, for your characters from people you know in your uh, within your life and your existence? And did you find that when you wrote your first book, it was more more like that, more auto autobiographical? And if one has a traumatic story to tell, is that more difficult when one's been through a lot? 
and one doesn't know where to start? I don't know. That's a really interesting question. I think it just depends who you are and what kind of writer you are, really. I mean, for me, I'd, um, you know, the answer is yes, of course I draw from my life and I draw from the people around me because that's all we've, any of us have got, isn't it? But I also look further afield, you know, and I, I do research and I, you know, it's, it can be anything really that I see anywhere could, could start a story. I mean, my first novel definitely was more based on, you know, it was that very typical thing of I wrote about the place where I was from and something that happened in the place where I was from. It wasn't about me, but it was about, you know, the place and the kinds of people that, that I knew. Um, and then with my second two, they, they were more based on research and other people's lives. But the novel I've just written, I, I kind of went back to writing about things closer to home. And um, in a way that felt more difficult because I was, I'd, I'd had a child and I had postnatal depression and had quite a bad time. And I really wanted to write about it. And I'd never really written about something that had happened to me like that before. And it felt very exposing and it made me feel quite vulnerable, actually. <laughs> you know, and, and now I'm not sure whether I would do that again. But it just, it just felt like I really had to write about it. And also I was on a very tight deadline, so I didn't have time to do research. <laughs> so I kind of had to look to my own life. But, but I think in a, way, you know, in a way that is more difficult to write about yourself. And to do it in a way that is convincing and, and, and goes beyond the personal, you know, to yeah. tell a, a story that lots of people can relate to yeah, because I, I mean, I've suffered from depression mm. and am recovering from it. And I just wondered if it's a story worth telling, yeah. a person's journey through depression and recovery and um, making a new life for yourself, mm. um, which is what I'm having to do right now, to be honest. Well, you know, I mean, all stories are stories worth telling. It's, it's how you tell them. And also, I just wanted to say, when the fascination that um, the boy had with his teacher, I remember um, being obsessed with my English literature, English, English literature, literature teacher, <laughs> Tessa Palfreyman, who used to waft into... She isn't here tonight. <laughs> She's here, yeah. <laughs> well, listen, we, we, uh, we have to wrap it up now. Okay. But, um, I, I, I wanted to th thank you so much. And really, I wanted to, to thank... Beth Ann, and, and to congratulate you on, on um, winning this. And uh, um, f uh, but most of all, we're very grateful for her to, uh, for giving the world a wonderful story, a really wonderful story. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you for all your questions. Um, would you please join me in please thanking the shortlist who have done incredibly well to get to them. <laughs> and a final thanks on behalf of the Royal Academy and Pindrop goes to Stephen Fry and Bethan Roberts for an excellent <laughs> Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.